All right. Welcome, everybody. Um, it is great to see you all. We're back. We're back and better than ever. This is our next session of You Be the Judge. So the goal of You Be the Judge, by the way, in case I haven't clarified before, the goal is to give you kind of modern cases and questions, legal, ethical questions, considerations, using real case studies, and try to see how we feel about that when we apply and, 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 and applying Jewish law and ethical considerations to kind of parse these cases. So the last time we, we met, which was about two weeks ago, we spoke about the, the topic of profiting using someone else's stuff. And we spoke about that, using someone else's cow to make money, or yes, all right, good. So we spoke about using someone else's stuff to make money. Today we're going to speak about another topic, a bit of a different topic, and that topic is using someone else's stuff to save a life. What happens if life is in danger, and in order to protect life, in order to save life, you decide that you're going to go ahead and use someone else's stuff. So, for example, the one question would be, are we allowed to steal or damage another person's property to save a life? You know what, let's start off with, uh, with you be the judge, with, the, with that, that as, a, as a poll question. By raise of hand, who thinks that you're allowed to steal to save your life? If your life is in danger, are you allowed to steal something to save your life? Raise of hand. Yes? Yes? Anyone say no? No. Okay. Um, what about damaging someone else's property? Are you allowed to damage someone else's property to save your life? Yes? Yes? Okay. What about saving someone else's life? Are you allowed to steal or damage someone else's property to save someone else's life? So this is a third party. So there's you, there's the property owner, and then there's the third party whose life is at risk to save their life. Something has to be stolen or broken. Are you allowed to, are, are you allowed to damage or steal to save someone else's life? Yes? Yes? Okay, everyone agrees. Beautiful. That's the, those are the easy questions. The hard question is, and this is really at the core of today's session, is, is there liability in the aftermath of saving a life? In other words, if in the process of saving one's own life or someone else's life, if in that process something is stolen or damaged, does the one who caused the theft or the damage need to repay the loss? Understand the question? Yes? For example, should I give you an example? Ambulance is driving in an emergency and they slam into a car, are the paramedics liable for the damage? I know what you're thinking, insurance covers it, fine. But let's just say there's no insurance, theoretically, right? In a case outside the whole, the whole you know, insurance, the, the world of insurance, if Pete, someone's driving an ambulance to save a life, to try to save a life, and in the course of that, slams into another car, causes damage to another vehicle, is the person that is en route to saving a life, are they liable for the damage that they cause? Who says yes, who says no? Liability, yes. Liability, no. Who says no liability? All right. Okay. All right, anybody want to weigh in so far on what we just spoke about? The scenarios? No, yes. Rabbi, are we talking about American law or Jewish law for this? So we're talking about our own sensibilities. Before we get into U.S. law, Jewish law, because we're going to present this from a perspective of Jewish law, but before we get into that, I just want to kind of want to take the temperature of the room. Do you, do you guys think that there should be liability when someone is causing damage to someone else, but it's in the course of saving a life, one's own, or someone else's life? Or maybe we absolve them of liability because they're doing something you know, something special, something important. That's, that's at the core, the core question. Um, do we want to give a free pass to someone who causes damage while saving a life? That's the question. Okay, so to get into this from a Jewish perspective, we're going to present some 
very interesting Jewish texts. And I think you're going to find all of these texts super fascinating. So the first thing we need to establish is something that I'm sure we all know, but it, it bears repeating. And that is that Jewish life, sorry, Jewish law values life above everything else. As important as you know, every, every individual law may be, life is m the most important thing. So to save a life, we violate, classically in Jewish law, you're, you're able to violate pretty much, almost, any mitzvah, any uh, commandment in order to save a life. So for example, let's talk about Shabbat. So we violate Shabbat to save a life. We violate kosher to save a life. Violate pretty much out of the 613 commandments, 610 of them are violated to save a life. The only three that are not is murder, idolatry, and adultery. These are three things that we don't do even to save a life because they're so, they're so big, the big three. But when it comes to anything else, one is allowed to violate the law in order to save a life. That is how important life is. Therefore, that leads us to the following conclusion, that one may steal property to save a life, even though stealing, theft, is prohibited by Jewish law and by our own morality, hopefully, right? Nonetheless, that law is suspended, or prohibition against theft is suspended when it comes to saving a life. So one may steal to save a life. One may damage property to save a life. I want to share with you a very interesting story. It's really fascinating. It's the way it's written, it's going to sound a little strange, but hopefully when I explain it, it will make a lot more sense. Okay, I'm, I'm going to share my screen with you so that we can look at this text together. Give me a moment. Let me find where this text is. Hold on. Here we go. This is going to be text number one from the Talmud. Talmud Tractate Yoma. Oh, by the way, Tractate Yoma, you, can you guys see that little, um, the source underneath the text, Talmud Yoma 83b? Yoma is the tractate that speaks about Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, the laws and the, the regulations of Yom Kippur. So in the context of that discussion, I mean, there's, the Talmud kind of goes off on tangents as well. Anyway, this following story is told. Let's just isolate the story text one. Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi were walking together when a ra ravenous hunger, ravenous, ravenous hunger, seized Rabbi Yehuda. He seized a shepherd and devoured his meal. Okay, this may sound like cannibalism, but it's not. What it means is he went over to a shepherd and ate the bread that the shepherd was eating or the meal that the shepherd was eating. Why? Because a fierce hunger came over him. So I told you the story as is written literally um, is, is a little bit hard to understand. But in, the, in the, um, the original Hebrew and Aramaic, this ravenous hunger is called bulmus. Bulmus in the Hebrew. If you can see in text one of the Hebrew, I'm kind of like moving my arrow uh, mouse around it. Bulmus. Bulmus means not just a hunger, but it's... Um, a faintness, a dizziness, a, uh, um, and most commentaries explain that it's, it's a situation of low blood sugar and the person needs to eat something immediately. I think there's a word for that in, in medicine called um, hypoglycemia. Yes? Familiar with that, hypoglycemia? Am I pronouncing that correct? Hypoglycemia. Hypoglycemia, thank you. Hypoglycemia, and that is where um, the person just is low, low, low blood sugar and needs to eat something immediately, needs to get, get food into the bodies and certain foods into the body to, to, uh, to, 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 to heal the body. So the Talmud is telling us that essentially this happened with Rabbi Yehuda. As he's walking down the street, this, this, he gets, he gets this, um, this, this need to eat something and he goes over to this guy and, and he eats, he eats the, this guy's food. 
So the que- so is he allow- was he allowed to steal the guy's food? The answer is yes, because it was like, for him it was like a life and death situation. It wasn't. This is where the misunderstanding comes in the Talmud. It's not like he's walking down the street. Some guy was eating something. He's like, that looks really good. I'm hungry. And he just steals the guy's food. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a great rabbi who certainly respects the property of others. This was a medical emergency, right? This was a medical emergency. He needed to eat something. This was the only food around. He took the guy's food. So question number one, was he allowed to take, to steal that guy's food? The answer is yes. To protect life and well-being, you're allowed to. But then the follow-up question is, must he repay the owner, the shepherd, for the meal that he stole? Right? If he stole a loaf of bread, is he on the hook to repay the guy? What do you guys, what do you think? Yes or no? All right, Stan says yes. Stan, jump in. I think the answer is, is yes, again, because of the equities that, that apply in the case. And also, as I recall from another class, that I took with you, I remember the answer, so that may be cheating. <laughs> oh, look at that, look at that. Okay, good, good. So according to, according to Stan, according to, to me, right, according to Jewish law, this is, Stan is quoting me, quoting Jewish law, so one would be liable to do so, which, which, is, which is correct. We're gonna have four exceptions, and that's really what today's class is built on, the four exceptions the rule. Here's the rule. You're allowed to steal to save a life like this rabbi who got this attack and needed food. You're allowed to steal to save a life. You're allowed to damage property to save a life. Let me give you a simple example. Let's say, God, let's say somebody is wandering. Let's say somebody gets lost and they get lost in the forest and they're there for three days and they have no food. No food. And they're, di- they're literally dying of hunger. And they see, they're wandering, finally they come, they see there's a... Um, there's a, uh, a house or a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A hut, not a hut, a, um, a cabin. There we go. There's a cabin in the woods. The cabin is locked. They look in through the window. There's a kitchen. And it looks like there's food in the pantry. What do they do? So they, and they break down the door. They, they, they smash the window to get in and grab food. Were they allowed to break down the door or smash the window? Yes or no? The answer is yes. To save a life? Yeah, 100%. Jewish law says not only are you allowed to do so, you must do so. Because we have an obligation to preserve life. But that doesn't absolve liability. There's two issues. You have to break down the door to save a life. Your own life or someone else's life. Because if it doesn't matter, you know, if, if you see someone who's dying of hunger, God forbid, and there's, one, there's, there's a cabin nearby, then you do it for them. Same, same deal. But, but there's liability. So you have to do it. There's still liability. We're able to separate the two issues. Does that make sense? Yes? Yes. Okay. There are four exceptions. And these four exceptions are cases where one does not have to repay for the theft or the damage. What are these four exceptions? La'at, la'at. We're going to go through this nice and slow, one at a time. Exception number one has to do with being a king. I'm going to share with you this next story that you might find very interesting. All right, let me pull this up once again. Text number two. Text number two is coming from the Talmud as well, Bavakama 60b. This is a story of King David. David had a craving. David had a craving and said, If only someone could give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is in the city gate. Very specific. Oddly specific craving for water from the well of Bethlehem, which is in the city gate. Okay, it's like, you know, people, they want only bottled water from a certain company, room temperature, right? That whole thing. Okay. So the three mighty men of David broke into the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which is at the gate, and they carried it and brought it to David. That is from the book of Samuel. Let's continue the Talmud remarks. Ravuna said, Ravuna 
explains. There were stacks of barley. Here's a new scenario. Not the water, but now the barley. There were stacks of barley belonging to the Jews in which Philistines were hiding. I know what you're thinking. Stacks of barley, you're thinking of a little stack and some guy hiding behind the stack. No, we're talking about massive mounds of barley that the Philistines, the, let me explain the Philistines. The Philistines, the Plishtim, were an age-old arch enemy of the Jewish people. From the time the Jewish people went into the land of Israel, you know, in the times right after Moses, Moses led them to the, to the, to the border of Israel, Joshua led them into Israel. Pretty much from that moment on, the Philistines, amongst other nations, but the Philistines were one of those nations that were a thorn at the side of the Jewish people. So here we have the Talmud telling us that the Philistines were hiding, the enemy was hiding in mounds, like huge stacks of barley, barley reserves or whatever, that, were, that belonged to Jews. Let's continue. David in the brackets. David wanted to set fire to the stacks to root out the enemy. Okay? In other words, he wanted to burn down the barley so that there would be no more hiding spots. Um, in modern, I, you know, I don't want to get controversial, in modern, uh, a modern example would be knocking down a building when your enemy is, um, is using that as a place to, um, to attack from. Okay? So the question is, so he asked halakha guidance from the Sanhedrin. King David went to the high court. The Sanhedrin is the Jew, Jewish Supreme Court. He went to the Jewish Supreme Court and asked the question as follows. Is it permissible to save oneself through the destruction of someone else's property? Right? I, 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 I'm, I'm being threatened or we're being threatened by the enemy. The enemy is hiding behind property that belongs to fellow Jews. Can I unilaterally destroy the property to root out the enemy? In other words, to save ourselves by destroying someone else's property without asking permission first. The Sanhedrin, the high court, sent back to him the following decision. It is nor listen to this, listen to this. It is normally prohibited for a person to save himself through the destruction of someone else's property. It is normally prohibited for a person to save himself through the destruction of someone else's property. But you, you are a king, and a king may break through fences around another's property to make a path for himself and his armies, and no one may protest against him. Thus, you are permitted to burn the stacks of barley. Does this story make sense? Yes? I don't think it makes sense. Oh, the, the, but you're not, we just said you could... Um, Destroy somebody's property to save life. Good, so good. It doesn't make sense. Good. To me. Alice is asking the question that the great Talmudic commentaries ask. Perfect. You're asking the question that the great Talmudic commentaries ask. They ask, how, what does it mean? The Sanhedrin says it's normally prohibited to save oneself through destruction of property. You're putting property over life? Since when? You say, oh, only the king is allowed to save his life by destroying property. And, and, and what about you and I? You can't, you can't break into someone's cabin to save someone who's dying of hunger? Are you kidding me? That's, what the, that's Jewish law? And I, and I just told you outside the text that the, indeed the case, the, the law was that you are allowed to do so. So what's going on here? The commentaries explain. You have to understand what it means. You can't just go by the words sometimes. You have to understand what it means. The Sanhedrin was saying it's prohibited for a person to save himself through the destruction of someone else's property without the intent to pay back. That's what it means. That's what it means. You can't do it and say, I'm off the hook. No, 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 no. You are on the hook. You're allowed to do it, but you have to know when you do it that you're going to have to pay back the money. Are you with me on this? Who doesn't have to pay back the money? Guys, unmute yourself. What's the exception that the Talmud is telling us? The king. That's the it. King. That's why not? Why not? Eminent domain. Em, you know that phrase, eminent domain. What's what's pshat eminent domain? What does eminent domain mean? It means the king owns everything, right? That's what it means for a king. The king, at the end of the day, has his hand, could have his hands on anything and everything, and thus you don't make the king pay back for the bunt. Now, if he if he wants to hook the guys up with 
you know, the barley owners with the barley reserves and whatever, fine, he's a nice guy, he's a nice king, do what he wants. But you, we don't say, oh, you're not allowed to break into someone's cabin, break into someone's cabin, bro, I'm the king, right? I'm literally the king. I mean, I'm not the king, but the king would say, I'm the king and I, I, I have access. I got all access, especially when it comes to security, right? I have all access. It comes to a, a highway, the king can take over someone's house and property. So certainly when it comes to life and death, the king is allowed to do so without even the need necessarily, he could be a good guy, but without the need to repay, there's no liability when it comes to the king. So this clarifies, th this is why I wanted to bring this Talmudic text for that back and forth. In other words, because there could be a misunderstanding when you initially read the Talmudic text. Hold on, only the king is allowed to destroy property to save life and no one else? No, 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 no. Everyone's allowed to. But everyone else who does it then has to pay back, is on the hook for reimbursement. The king is not obligated to pay back because the king, it all, it all belongs to the king on some level. Does that make sense? Yes? So yes, that, except the king can afford it, and everybody else can't. That's the irony. That's the irony. The irony is the one guy who could afford paying back everything that was damaged in the context of war is the one guy we say, but he doesn't have to. It's like, oh, Kevald, I would hope he does. That's why I kept on saying, I, you would hope that he would pay back because it's no, no, uh, no, whatever the expression is, no big deal, right? But nonetheless, because of eminent domain, because the king officially has the power to allocate and take uh, resources as needed, so therefore, there's no legal liability on the king's, on the king's part. It's kind of like, I mean, to use an, an example that we, I don't know if we can relate to, but we can contextualize a little bit more. It's like in a time of war, you know, the government's allowed to draft people into the army. I mean, I mean, it was not even, we're not even talking about like taking factories and whatever. We're talking about taking people. You're allowed to take people for the war effort, right? The government's allowed to take people for the war, people, human beings, for the war effort. So, I mean, if that's the case, then certainly the government can take, can burn down some barley belonging to someone uh, for the safety and security. Of, 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 of the country and the king and whatever. All right, so here's exception number one, the king. So typically, again, just uh, the, the key here is clarity. And oh, and by the way, once I present all the laws, well, then we're going to look at some case studies, kind of more modern case studies, and try to apply them, uh, try to apply the, what we've learned to these case studies. It's going to be a very, I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation. So the rule is, whatever it takes, you do to save a life. Steal bread, break into a cabin, burn down, uh, you know, hiding places of the enemy. Whatever it takes to save life, you do. Correct? So far, so good? Yes. Okay, good. But there's liability. There's, there's, uh, it's like criminal and civil. There's no criminal charges, not like you decide, but there's civil liability. You got, there's monetary liability. You still have to, you know, pony up the cash to repay the, uh, the food that was stolen, or the, ca the door that was broken down, or the window that was smashed, or theoretically the barley, but not the except, okay, until we get to the exception. Exception number one is the king. The king is not liable in these types of cases because the king has that type of, uh, of power. Okay, so if we go back to text number one, uh, I'm not going to pull it back up, but the case of Rabbi Yehuda, who got this, this fierce hunger, he like life and death, he need, he had to have food. He goes over to the shepherd, grabs the guy's food from his plate. Was he allowed to do so? Yes. Was he obligated to do so? Yes. Is he obligated to pay back the guy for his meal? Yes. He's not the king. Next exception. This is going to be huge. Text number four, I believe. Let me share my screen with you, and let's do this together. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's read text three, which explains what we just said before. Text three from the Code of Jewish Law, Laws of Theft. Um, it is prohibited to save oneself with someone else's money without the intention to reimburse for the loss if one has the means to do so. You with me on this? In other words, you can't save yourself with someone else's stuff and not plan on paying them back. 
as there is no duress in not paying, and one has the choice to reimburse the owner without subjecting oneself to danger. In other words, the danger, let's talk about the case where somebody is starving to death in the forest and stumbles upon a cabin, breaks, through the, breaks down the door, or smashes the window to get food from the pantry. So there's damage and theft and, and saving a life. So it says in the Code of Jewish Law that you're, you're allowed to do that, you're, you're, you should do that, but you're not allowed to do that without having the intention to repay. Because repaying you can do. There's no, there's no um, life and death when it comes to repaying. You were able to steal, let, 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 me, let me explain what he's saying in this text. It's really a powerful text. You were allowed to steal to save a life, to save your own life. But now that your life is fine, now that you're okay, what's stopping you from repaying, right? There's, it's not life and death, I can't pay, it's life and death. No, in the moment of life and death, yeah, you had to steal because there was no other food around. You had to break through the door, smash the window because there's no food around. But now that the danger has passed, what's the excuse? You're gonna hold on to the theft? That doesn't make any sense. So when you're doing it, do it, but no, that you're at some later point, you're going to have to pay back for that damage. Okay, so far so good. Yes. But but this seemed to carve out an exception uh, uh, for for people who don't have the ability to repay. Right. If one has the means to do so, and yeah. there is no duress in not paying. Yeah. Yes. 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 The implication here might be for another example that we haven't discussed. Let's say somebody is very poor and doesn't have any food, doesn't have any money, are they allowed to steal to survive? So what we're, th this is probably the direct, because I'm looking at the Hebrew. So it looks like this is the context that one is not allowed to steal unless one has the intention to pay back when they have the ability to do so. So this seems to be talking about it, that case. Now, does that mean if the person never has the ability to do so, then, they never, then they, they're off the hook? I mean, I don't know if they're off the hook or they just can't do it, at, at, you know, they, they can't do it. But the, the, you're right, it does kind of open up an exception where one cannot pay back, but I guess that's in any case of liability where somebody's found to be, um, you know, there was someone is found to, to, to owe damages and they just can't pay it. I mean, then I don't know what you do with that, but that's, an, that's, that's another conversation. But yeah, the, the, but the, the core idea here is that one is, is on the hook for the damages or the theft, um, and, and one has to know that going in. That's the important thing over here, is one should know that going in. Yes, you're allowed to steal, you should steal in this context, but you gotta pay for it. You're gonna be on the hook. And if you don't have it now, okay, but when you have it, you'll, yeah, you're on the hook for it. That's kind of the idea. Now, if we look at text four, we're gonna find the next exception, which I think is going to be a, ve a very interesting one, and it's going to have a lot of ramifications in our larger conversations. Text four. Here we go. The Talmud again says, someone who is running away from a killer and broke another person's vessels while running is liable for those vessels. So, God forbid, right? The whole scenario is God forbid. God forbid. Somebody is chasing someone else with a knife. And the, the, the potential victim is running for their life. And in the course of running away, runs through a neighbor's yard and smashes pottery, uh, um, whatever. They're liable. There's liability for those vessels. Like we said before, right? You're allowed to do whatever it is to save a life, but you're still on the hook for the damage. Okay. But let's take a look at the next case. Someone who is pursuing a pursuer in an attempt to save the life of the pursuit and cause damage to the vessels of the pursuer of life or anyone else's vessels is exempt from repayment. Let me explain that second scenario. Scenario number one is where you're running away for your own life. Scenario number two is you are trying to save someone else's life. In the context of trying to save someone else's life, if damage is caused, you are not liable for the damage. That's the big exception here. 
The Talmud continues, this is not based on strict legal principle, rather it was legislated by the sages. For if we would hold a savior of life liable for the damages he may cause, no one would want to save lives. You see that? We might call this a Good Samaritan law. Straight up Good Samaritan law in the Talmud dating back 1700 years. Look, Jewish law way ahead of its times. We, we know that by now, hopefully. Um, Jewish law states that if you're running, God forbid, if the person, if, let's, call, let's call him Reuven, if Reuven is running for his life and damages vessels of someone else or smashes someone's door for safety, whatever it is, to break into a cabin and then lock the door behind them, whatever it is, he's, he's, he's liable. You were allowed to do it. You had to do it to save your life. You're still on the hook. But if, for example, Reuven's life is not endangered. Shimon's life is endangered. There's a murderer trying to murder Shimon. And you're there. Reuven is there. And Reuven can stop it. Let's say he stops it by picking up the vessels and smashing it over the bad guy's head. Or let's say he breaks down someone else's property to rescue the guy, the other guy. We don't hold Reuven, the rescuer, liable. Why? because we want to incentivize people to save other people's lives. We don't need to incentivize you to save your own life. We need to incentivize you to save someone else's life. You with me on that? We don't need to let you off the hook when it comes to your own life, because otherwise you might not save your own life. Of course you're going to save your own life. You're liable now to pay the damages. But when it comes to someone else's life, you might say, look, I could get involved and save this guy, uh, Shimon's life, but honestly, I don't have a thousand bucks, so I'm not going to do it, right? I don't want to, be, I don't want to have a bill now. So I'm going to turn away and pretend like I don't see it because I don't want to get involved. Jewish law says that is, that, 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 is, uh, that is what we want to avoid. We want to preclude that from, from that, that consideration. Thus, we don't hold the, the one who saved the life while stealing or damaging something else. We don't hold them liable for the damage because otherwise no one would want to save lives. Does that make sense? Yes? It does make sense, but there's something really weird about it. That it's okay, you know, that it's okay uh, to save somebody else's life, but if you're trying to save your own life, you're liable for the damage. I, I there's just something. Yeah. It's a very, it's a very strange distinction. Yeah, it's it's a it's an interesting. It, the the outcome is very interesting, right? Yeah. The outcome is, yeah. but the truth is, the way the Talmud describes it, from a pure legalistic perspective. In both cases, there's liability. It's only that there's extra, if you will, extra legal uh, um, uh, legislation, rabbinic legislation that says we as a society want to incentivize people to step up for other people and, and look out for their well-being. We don't want them to, to hesitate for a moment because for our own selves, we're not going to hesitate because we have that, 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 that innate desire to preserve our own lives. But when it comes to someone else, we might start thinking and weighing. Well, should I help them? But I'm going to be on the hook for the... So like, you know what? If you help someone else out, as a society, we're going to clear all the debt. We're just going to wipe away the liability and say, you're off the hook. What this leads to, and you're right, it leads to strange distinctions. And, and I want to highlight some of those distinctions now in our conversation. So here, here's one example. Of, of the outcome of this, of this exception. Um, I mean, I'm going to bring this up later when we have our case studies. Maybe I should, okay, you, you know what, let's, I don't want to give the example yet. We have four case studies. So let's, we'll get into the case studies in a moment. And then you'll see some interesting uh, distinctions. All right, let me give you a third exception. Third exception. Third exception of where one is not liable for damaging property to save a life. We had two, two exceptions so far. If you're the king or if you're saving someone else's life. Third exception is if the property itself is the cause of the danger. If the property itself is the threat to life. Then by destroying the property, you're not liable for that because you're eliminating essentially a murderer. In Jewish law, there's a, din, there's a, there's a law called rodef. You may be familiar with it from previous classes. Rodef means someone who is pursuing or a force that is threatening life. 
And Jewish law says you're allowed to take out that threat of life, that threat to life, with whatever force is necessary, even lethal force. So if, in the example that I gave before, if some guy is pursuing Shimon to kill him, God forbid, Reuven is allowed to kill the murderer, or the, the, the assailant, before he kills this innocent guy. And it's not considered murder, it's considered to be eliminating a threat, eliminating rotive. So this is self-defense, or defense of someone else. One is allowed to, you, you shouldn't use lethal force if you don't need to, but if you do need to, you're justified in using lethal force. Well, the same law of rotif, of eliminating the pursuer of life, would apply also to property. And if, there were, if we could come up with a scenario where the property was the threat, then by eliminating the property, one is eliminating the threat, that becomes not only allowed but a mitzvah, and now there's no liability. Okay? So what's a good example of this? A ship. Ever been on a cruise? Ever been on a boat? Yeah? Gilligan's Island? Remember that? Remember the storm? What happens if there's a ship at sea? And the ship is overloaded. There's too much stuff. And you need to throw overboard some items. Some people's luggage. Are you liable? Again, forget insurance now, right? Are you liable for throwing over someone else's suitcase? So if we consider the suitcase to be the threat to life, then it's justified and there's no liability. Are you with me on this? You're not destroying property to save a life from an external threat. This is the, literally the luggage is the threat. Now you might wonder, well, why? who says that this luggage is the threat? Maybe it's the other person's luggage. So maybe you go by the last luggage that was brought on and you go in reverse order. Like the luggage that's closest to the exit or closest to the loading hatch, you start, start with that because it's, it's overloaded. So that means that th those bags put it over the, over the weight. So those have to go. Those are considered to be the rotif, the threat. This is all from the Talmud. Let me share my screen with you once again and let's do this inside. Text number five, I'm sorry, from the Code of Jewish Law. If a ship is about to be capsized due to the overwhelming weight of weight on the ship, and, okay, well, one second, let me try that again. If a ship is about to be capsized due to the overwhelming weight on the ship, and one of the passengers, not even the captain, one of the passengers throws some of his luggage overboard to save the ship, he is exempt from reimbursing the owner of the luggage. As we see, the luggage as a rodev, a pursuer of life. The luggage itself was the threat. Eliminating the threat, there's no liability anymore. The passenger who throws the luggage overboard does a great mitzvah since he saves, saves lives. However, this is only true if someone overloaded the ship with his luggage. However, if the ship is not overloaded, but ominous waves of water are threatening to sink the ship during a storm, one who throws off some of the luggage in order to lighten the ship will be liable. Are you with me on that? And the second scenario is like this. The ship is not dangerously overloaded. It's not overweight. The ship is fine. The luggage is fine. But there's a storm. In the context of the storm, you need to eliminate some of the weight. So what's the source of the threat? The weight or the storm in the second scenario? The storm. So when it's the storm, and the only way out of the storm threat is throwing off the luggage, you're allowed to do it, but there's still liability. It's like the case of uh, saving a life by breaking into someone's house and you know, finding shelter somewhere. Sure, you're allowed to do it. Sure, you have to do it, but sure, there's liability. The only exception, and exception, this is our third exception, exception number three is when the property itself is the source of the threat. So when the luggage is the threat because it's the heavy luggage that's pulling the ship down, then by eliminating the luggage, you're eliminating the threat, and that's kosher, and now there's no liability to repay. But when the threat is not from the luggage, it's from the storm. You with me on this? The th the, if there wasn't a storm, there would be no problem. The issue here is that there's a storm. It, the storm is threatening the ship. In the context of trying to steer out of the damage, or out of, out of danger, you're trying to lighten the ship and throw over luggage, sure, go ahead, but you've got to pony up the cash for that. You've got, you got to reimburse the owners for their, for their lost items. Does that make sense? The distinction between the two cases of the ship? Yes? Okay. Yes. I, hope, I hope you're enjoying this process.
of Talmudic and, and Jewish legal analysis. It's, it's, I think it's a beautiful thing. It's so, it's so rich, and obviously we're not doing this with all the commentaries and elaborate you know, conversations. We're doing it kind of in a brief ma manner, but ho hopefully you can see how much thought, logical thought, was put in, has been put into Jewish law over the last 3,300 years. It's a very elaborate system, a very well thought out system. You can also see why, as I mentioned in a previous class, there's lots of Jewish lawyers. There's a lot of legal thinking in, in, our, in our people's history. I, I mean, that's what the conversation's been for the last 3,000 years, Jewish law and the, and the contours of Jewish law. So what we have here is a rule and three exceptions thus far. The rule is you destroy or steal property to save a life. The rule is also you're on the hook for the damage or the theft in that, in, 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 in that process. Exception number one, if you're the king, then you have all access, you don't have to worry about reimbursement. You should anyway. Exception number two is when it comes to saving someone else's life. The rabbis, rabbinically, it's incentivized. We want to encourage people to save other people's lives. We don't want to discourage them by, thinking about, by them thinking about the bill that is accumulating in the process of saving someone else's life. So we eliminate that entire thought process, don't worry about the money, save a life. Second exception. Third exception is when it comes to the property being the source of the danger. If the property itself is the source of the danger, then one is allowed to eliminate that without any liability because you're, you are essentially destroying a murderer. The, 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 the luggage is about to kill you. The extra weight of the luggage is killing you. It's going to take the whole ship down. You get rid of the luggage. No looking back. The, the, the converse case, or the opposite, the other case with the ship, as we said in the Talmud just now, is if the luggage is not the issue, the storm is the issue, but to get away from the storm, you want to throw, over the, throw away the luggage, sure, but then, you're on the, you, then you revert back to the rule, which is you're on, you're on the hook for the, for the damage and the theft. Make sense? Okay, now let's get to our case studies. I'm going to pull these up. Now, now you are armed with information. You know, knowledge is power. And y'all are locked and loaded right now. You guys have the information. Let's go through these as a discussion. So feel free to unmute yourself uh, preemptively. Let's get ready for it because we're going to have a nice discussion about these, a number of cases. Case study number one, the case of the burning building. You are taking a walk and see smoke coming out of a building, obviously, God forbid. A child is screaming from the second floor. You can't enter the house because the house is locked. So you break a window and manage to open the front door and save the child's life. Okay, you break the window to save the child's life on the second floor. Question, case study one, you be the judge, right? You guys are now the judge. Jewish law, Jew, you're, you're the judge. You're, you're wearing the robe, you're ready to go. Are you liable for the broken window? Yes or no, what do you guys think? No. Why, no, why not? Because you're, it's the building was on fire, so it's, it's uh, saving a life. To, you destroy pop property to save a life. So you're not liable for that. So you're, 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 you're um, destroying property to save a life. The key is that, what's the key in this case? That it's whose life are you saving? Someone else's. Good. You're saving someone else's life. And as we said, exception number two was that when it comes to saving someone else's life, there's no liability. Liability is out the window. We want to encourage people. We don't want you to start. St we don't want you to stop and say, "Hmm, there's a child there, but I don't. I don't want to. I don't have money for windows now. I'm not going to do it." No, break the window. There's no liability. Don't worry about it. The community will cover it. We'll have a fund. We'll put a fund together. We'll, we'll make it happen. You're not liable. Don't worry about it. Good. Perfect. Let's talk about the next case. Case study number two. The case of the swerving car. You are, I want to show you a video about this also. You are driving your car when to your horror you realize that you have lost your brakes. God forbid. In a desperate attempt to avoid a fatal accident, you instinctively turn off the road into someone's private property, slamming into the side of the house and causing substantial damage to the exterior wall. Okay, so your brakes, not yours, but some, right, one's brakes are failing, have failed. They are afraid of getting into a fatal accident. 
swerve the car, smash into the side of a house, right? Alongside the house, cause a lot of damage, and your life is spared. Do you, question one, you be the judge, do you have to pay for the damage, yes or no? Yes. Good? Because, because it's, um, to save your own life, you, um, you are liable. Exactly. The, Perfect. Exactly. Exactly. Were you allowed to do it? Yes. Should you have done it? Yes. Are you liable for it? Also, yes. You were supposed to do it, but you got to pay for it now when you have the money, right? I mean, you got to put together the cash and pay for it, pay for the damage. Take a look at question number two. Is the case any different if you're trying to avoid hitting a child who ran in front of your moving vehicle, causing damage in the process? You see this? Yes, yes it's different because you're saving somebody else's life. Good. I want to show you a real story that happened in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, New York, um, a few months ago. It's a, it's a crazy video. It's a, it's a very scary video. Okay, I'm stopping to share. And I want to get this ready on my end. Give me a second. Going to get this ready on my end. Hold on, please. Let's see, where are we here? Can you guys see, see, do you see the car in the street? Do you guys see that? Yes. All right, watch what happens in this video. You guys saw that? Yes. There, I'm going to go back a little bit, right? I wish I could slow it down. I, I don't know how. This kid is riding, this teenager is riding in middle of the street, turns in uh, against a, a green light, and a car swerves, clips him, doesn't hit him head on, curves to the left, clips him a little bit, drives up the stairs of a brownstone, Brooklyn brownstone. The, the kid is now, the teenager is on the floor, injured, but not injured too badly. I mean, he's walking around. Thank God. But meanwhile, the car, can you see, what the, can you see the damage that the car has done to the, to the house? You guys see that, right? We can't see it too well, but I could, you can assume what's happening. Yeah, there were, there were, it basically drove up those front steps and just smashed some, mm -hmm. some stuff of the wall and, and, and the stairs and all that stuff. Okay, so what's the point? The point is that in this case, Right, if we ask the question, is the driver of the car, forget insurance, is the driver of the car liable for the damage to the house? What would you say? No. No. No, because he's saving someone, you're saving somebody else's right. life. The upshot of Jewish law might be, again, it's hard to definitively say that in a specific case, you know, because maybe there are other factors and whatever. We'll have to see if he was speeding, you know, we'll have to take other factors into consideration. But assuming that what we see is, is correct, one has a very strong argument to say that they, there wouldn't be liability there because he was saving someone else's life. And we don't want a person thinking twice. Like, if I turn left, I'm going to smash into a building, I have to pay $50,000. Who has that money? I don't want to have that headache. You know what? It's not my issue. I'm going to close my eyes and keep on going straight. God forbid we would want anyone to even hesitate for half a second and not quickly turn the wheel, come what may uh, damage to something else. Does that make sense? We want a person to avoid hurting someone else, especially when it's not their fault, saving a life at all costs. And uh, it, it's worth it for the community, for all of us, to take on that liability as opposed to putting it on one person and, and, and losing, losing lives in the process. Okay, we don't need to incentivize, again, saving one's own life because that doesn't need external um, incentive. That's usually an internal decision. Okay, let's get back to our case studies. And look at the next um, look at the next case study together. This is case study number three. This is a very interesting case. The case of the drop books. You are delivering on behalf of a friend a package of valuable books to someone. On the way, you notice a shady-looking character following you. He seems dangerous, so you start running. But the shady character is in better shape than you, especially since he has no load weighing on his back the way you do. In order to save your life, you decide to drop the load of books and run as fast as you can. You escape the danger and decide after a while to go back in order to recover the package of books. Unfortunately, they are gone. Is the story, is the scenario clear? Yes? 
Yes. Imagine books, very rare manuscripts or books worth uh, $1,000. Yeah, in a backpack, you're running, you can't escape fast enough, you throw off the backpack, by the time you come back, they're gone. So, question, you be the judge, do you have to pay for the books? No, because the, um, the property in this case was a threat to his life. Well, let's, so. a let's ask that as a question. Is, who's the, where's the threat? Is it the property that's the threat? Or is the, the shady character the threat? The shady character is the threat. It's kind of like the second ship case. Remember the second case of the ship? Where there's a storm, and in order for the ship to move out of the storm's way, it needs to be made lighter. In other words, if there was no storm, there's no issue. But because there's a storm, it needed to lighten its load. And therefore, you threw off the luggage. So you're allowed to do that, you have to do that, but there is liability. It would be a similar case in the scenario where the threat is not, the books are not the threat. The threat is the shady character. The books are only preventing you from escaping the threat, so you're allowed to get rid of them, but you're on the hook for the books. It's very unfortunate, but you're on the hook for the books. What would, uh, sorry, would the outcome be different if the shady character caught, caught you and told you at gunpoint to hand over the books? What do you think? Then, what the, the difference is, then the books become front and center, the main, the main character in the story. Because it's not that you're getting rid of the books to escape the guy, it's now the guy is demanding directly the books. So what's, what's the story in that case? So for that, we get to text number six, which is our final case study, case study four, which is a true story from the Holocaust, the case of the hidden treasure. Listen to this, a, a fascinating case that came before the Bet Din in Jerusalem. During World War II, Benjamin and Herman Gross, they were brothers, each hid a large sum of money in different places to remain till after the war. When the Nazis captured Herman, he pointed out to the soldiers the area where Benjamin's money was hidden so that they would spare him Herman. After the war, Benjamin sued his brother Herman before the rabbinical Supreme Court, sorry, in Tel Aviv, for the value of the treasure his brother had revealed. Benjamin argues that Herman should have used his own money in order to save his life. Herman does not deny the fact that he revealed his brother's hiding place, but claims that the SS men had already been told by an informer about Benjamin's money and that they asked him directly for the location of Benjamin's hiding place. There was no mention made of Herman's own money. Thus, his life depended upon revealing the location of Benjamin's money, and he should therefore be exempt from repayment. So again, two brothers, two stashes of cash. Herman reveals Benjamin's. Benjamin says, bro, literally, my brother, I mean, I'm glad you're alive, but you gave away my money. I'm going to take your money now. And he says, I, I had no choice. He says, of course you had a choice. You should have given them your own money. He's like, no, they heard about your money. They wanted your, your money from, your, from the area that they thought yours was in, and I had to do it. So what do you guys think? You be the judge. Based on what we have learned so far, do you think Herman has an obligation to repay his brother Benjamin for his lost treasure? This what is, about if you gave him half? All right, but that's already coming to compromises. But like, uh, like from a pure question of liability, Right? He's not saving someone else's life, he's saving his own life. So to save your own life, you're allowed to do whatever it takes, but you gotta, you gotta pay for it. So what's the argument? The argument is, well, they asked for it. They asked for it, okay, he's not the king, it's not saving someone else's life, and the money is not necessarily the threat in this case, right? Is the money threatening him? Not necessarily is the money threatening him, the money is the Nazi, the, the, the Nazis are threatening him. The money is just what he has to pony up in order to save his life. So, do we consider it a direct case of threat? Is the money the rodave, the pursuer of life, or is the Nazi? It's an interesting question. So to answer this question, we turn to text 7. This will be our final text from Maimonides. Take a look what he says. If a, this is exception number 4, which will answer case study number 4. If a ruthless ruler forces someone to reveal the belongings of a friend, that person is, ex is exempt from repaying the loss, because it was an act done under life-threatening circumstances, and it was direct. Yes, there's lots of acts that are done under life-threatening circumstances where you are liable if you break into a house, 
to eat the food from the pantry because you're dying of hunger. You're, it's also life-threatening circumstances, but there is liability. The reason, as the commentators explain why there's no liability here, in Maimani's case, is because there's a ruthless ruler that is forcing someone to do a specific act to reveal the belongings of a friend. And in that case, we look at the belongings. We look at that as the threat. Yes, the threat is coming from the ruthless ruler, but there is a, maybe I'll use a different, a different phrase, or a different way to understand it. Not necessarily that the, that this, that the property is the rodef, is the pursuer of life, but maybe a little bit differently. When the property is specified, then we say that you're not associated with the act. The ruthless ruler is. So because it was specifically asked for and demanded, it's not you that's doing it. It's not you that's destroying it. It's not you that's stealing it. They did it all the way through. Does that make sense? It's they who are acting on it. It's not you. So when there's a threat, let's break down the case, and we'll conclude with this point. When there's a threat from here, and someone chooses to break into someone's house, or the threat is hunger, starvation, and someone chooses to break into someone's cabin to save, a, to save their own life or whatever it is, Sure, but there's liability because you made that choice, it's on you. The you took that liability on you. But when the ruthless ruler says, right, you have to divulge this information of the whereabouts of your friend's treasure or else you're doomed, then the entire experience is on the ruthless ruler. It's like they, because it's so direct, so it's like they are the ones that, uh, that stole and ransacked. I mean, they did, but they, they're the ones that took the thing, it's not you. Therefore, the rabbinical court ruled that in this case, because, well, I mean, it depends if you believe Herman's story, but if you believe Herman's story, that the SS had information about Benjamin having a treasure, and they basically told them, you have to divulge that information or else, then it's literally the case of Rambam, Maimonides' case, from 1,000 years earlier, or 800, 900 years earlier, where Maimonides rules that there is no liability when it's being demanded by, uh, by threat of death directly directed at this thing. So that would get back to our case of the books in the backpack. Remember you were carrying books for your friend and the shady character and you ran. So if you ran and in the course of running you wanted to run faster and you threw off the books, that was your choice. And therefore you're liable for it. But if, God forbid, the guy approaches at gunpoint and robs the books, that's it. No liability. And so the rabbinical court ruled that Herman indeed was that case of being robbed of Benjamin's property. He was holding the information, right, of Benjamin's property. And by pain of death, by threat of death, he was asked to divulge. He divulged. There goes the liability. Liability is out the window. And, uh, and he is absolved. So what's the moral of the story? Number one, we always save a life. Number two, we're usually on the hook. Number three, there are exceptions. The four exceptions that we studied today are, number one, if you're the king, eminent domain. Number two, if it's saving someone else's life, it's in all of our best interest to incentivize that and not make you liable to repay the damages. Number three, if the property itself is what's causing the threat to life. And number four, if there is a specific I don't, know how to, I don't know how to say it quickly, but if, if there is a specific act, um, ask or demand of the property by threat of death. So those are the four exceptions. And now we know what to do in a case where um, life is at stake and we need to save a life. So again, the moral of the story is we save lives, we protect life, and uh, sometimes we're on the hook and also it's important to remember the difference between choices that we make and the choices that are imposed upon us, right? There are choices that we make, and that's on us. Choices that we're forced to make are not necessarily held against us. And so as we, as we kind of think about high holidays and think about stuff that, you know, we can improve, the choices that we make, certainly there's room for improvement, and we make good commitments. The choices that we've had to make, that might be on, uh, on, on a different party. All right, hope this made sense. Hope you enjoyed it. Any questions or comments to conclude?
or we're good? This was this was fun, really a lot of fun. Oh, good, 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 awesome. But um, but I can just see, you know, in a case of life and death, when you stop to think about, oh, am I going to be liable? Am I not going to be liable? I mean, you. I mean, I can't imagine anybody stopping to think about any of that stuff if if somebody else's life is in danger or if your life is in danger. Right. You, yeah. It's yeah, just interesting to know that you're liable in those cases. And right. Not liable. And what and what about the king thing? Who's yeah. king anymore? What, it, it wouldn't it wouldn't really apply. It's just it's just uh, one of the one of the examples in Jewish law. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, it would it wouldn't uh, wouldn't necessarily apply nowadays. Um, yeah, before we, and Henry, I know you wanted to mention something. I'll just mention one, one quick thing. Next week, we're the, in our final session, we'll be speaking about burden of proof. What is the level, what is the level of burden of proof according to Jewish law? We'll speak about the, 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 the notion of having two witnesses to a certain crime or to a certain act to, to prove it in court um, from a Jewish perspective and various related issues. It's going to be a fascinating conversation. So. Join me next week, same bad time, same bad channel, for the grand finale. Henry, jump in. Final word. Uh, I was just going to say, the guy who dropped the books reminded me of a Seinfeld episode where Crane was regarding a chest that belonged to Elaine. And <laughs> Brooklyn came and got the chest. There you go. See that? See that? It all comes down to Seinfeld. At the end of the day, everything is a Seinfeld episode. Look. Yes. Where did he get it from? He was probably studying the Talmud or something like that. <laughs> anyway, all right, good stuff. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. All right, we'll see you guys. Have a wonderful you, day. Everybody. Have a great week. All right, pleasure. We'll see you guys. everyone. Yes, yes. October. Yes, yeah, brand new course yes. starting. Good stuff. Yes. We'll see you guys. Yes. Awesome. All right, bye-bye.